Best Health, presented by the Royal Gazette and RG Mags, is your go-to health podcast. We connect you with the very best of Bermuda's health and wellness experts, enthusiasts and influencers, helping you get the very best from your mind and body. So go and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at the Royal Gazette and join the conversation every month. It starts right here. Hello and welcome to Eating Orderly, the sixth episode in the 2022 series of the Best Health Podcast. I'm Becky Ezekiel, and before we jump in, I want to say a huge thank you to our sponsors for making this episode possible. Lindos, why go anyplace else? Today, I am happy to be joined by Bermudian psychologist, Dr. Basin. For a bit of background, Dr. Basin completed her PhD at Boston University, where she was awarded the Martin Luther King Research Fellowship and then went on to Brown University Medical School, where she completed her pre-doctoral internship. Following that, she did a postdoctoral internship at Oxford University in the UK, as you do, working primarily with patients with eating disorders. Bringing all that expertise back to Bermuda in 2011, it's safe to say Bermuda is in good hands. Dr. Basin, welcome to Best Health. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. No, such a pleasure. So we've talked a bit about your background, but why psychology? What, what was it about psychology that interested you and why eating disorders in particular? Uh, sure. So um, I grew up, my mom is actually a nurse and has worked at the hospital. Actually, I have a fabulous picture of my mom graduating from nursing school <laughs> and I'm in her arms with a little cap and gown on myself. I was oh, only maybe one. That's so <laughs> um, it is. It's the best picture ever. So um you know, from a young age, I saw, I, I, I knew that it was a great job. It was a great profession to care for people. Mm-hmm. And my mom always told me, don't be a nurse because they are underappreciated. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, although she loves being a nurse. Um, so I guess I was always interested in the health field. And then when I started college, just fell in love with psychology as I was taking sort of normal courses. Mm-hmm. And in terms of eating disorder, that was uh, a not an intentional move, I would say. So I just got a fabulous opportunity to, um, to work at Oxford. And that was the opportunity, primarily working with eating disorders. I had done some eating disorder work in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, you know, who doesn't, tur- who turns on an opportunity to go to Oxford University, right? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, once I got there, I realized how I, I really enjoy working with folks with eating disorders. First of all, you get the opportunity to see people make such amazing changes in their lives, um, which is just so powerful. Um, yeah. And, and I, what I also love about working with eating disorders is that it really takes a team approach. So you're not working as a silo. You're not isolated. You are usually working with a psychiatrist, with a pediatrician, with a nutritionist. It's, it's really great to have other professions in your corner while you are helping somebody you know, become their best self. So that's one of the really pleasures that I enjoy. Yeah, because it really is a team effort. And eating disorders isn't something that we are widely educated about on a community level, even now. Um, most people, no. who, yeah, I mean, most people who, who are listening may, may not have any experience with a friend or a loved one who has an eating disorder. And a lot of people won't know I've, I've suffered myself. It's a subject that's really close to my heart. I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and have spent the last few years in recovery and I can completely testify that 
it took a lot of a lot of professional help in terms of you have a dietitian, you have a psychologist. It takes a lot of support as well as the support from your loved ones. Becky, thanks so much for opening up and sharing your personal story. You know, it's it really makes a difference getting people to help when people are willing to admit their own, you know, problems that they may have had and their positive experiences. So, wow, thank you for being so open about that. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm I'm really happy to be able to talk to you and hopefully kind of spread the word a bit and get people talking about it. Maybe someone listening, they'll find it helpful. Um, yes. So let's start off with the basics. So when we're talking about sure. eating disorders, what are the main ones we're referring to and how do they typically present in patients? Sure. Um, so, you know, when usually when we talk about eating disorders, most people imagine a young girl at a very low weight. Um, mm-hmm. And that's sort of the classic eating disorder. So that would be considered um, anorexia nervosa, which mm-hmm. is characterized as an eating disorder characterized by being at a very low weight, you know, an extremely low weight, a dangerously low weight, usually that may require hospitalization, um, along with a whole bunch of other things like uh, hyper focus on eating, um, sometimes over exercising, sometimes uh, vomiting, um, and usually a lot of medical complications. So that's a sort of traditional eating disorder, it's anorexia nervosa. Mm-hmm. But there is others that that we probably don't talk about as much and are probably more common. Mm-hmm. So that would be um, bulimia nervosa. So bulimia is characterized by somebody who um, engages in uh, binge eating, so eating a large amount of food in a small t- in a small set of time, um, and then does something to compensate. And that might be vomiting. It might be restriction after after a binge, restricting their eating. It might be over exercising. Mm-hmm. or taking laxatives or other things like that. So that would be bulimia nervosa. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, there's a new category um, called um, binge eating disorder, uh, which is probably very common, much more common than the others, I would say, mm-hmm. which is somebody who just has episodes of overeating um, without the compensatory behavior, without the vomiting afterwards or the restriction afterwards. So, you know, all of us overeat. Let me just clarify that, myself <laughs> included. <laughs> at Christmas or at birthdays yeah. or on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is more than just overeating. This is overeating along with psychological problems. So feeling terrible about themselves, feeling out of control. You know, the average person, when they overeat, um, it's with intention. Like, okay, I'm going out tonight. I am going to have dessert as yeah. well as dinner. And then I may eat some of my husband's food too. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a conscious decision and it doesn't feel out of control. And it certainly doesn't come with sort of the self-flagellation and the distress after the fact. So mm-hmm. that's important to say that um, that category, binge eating disorder, is not just overeating. It's a lot of other psychological things as well that come along with it. Sure. And if we, if we look at eating disorders and we think about those three main types, at what point do disordered eating patterns, which I think a lot of people suffer with. If we look around us, yes. people have kind of food rules. You know, I won't yes. eat past 6pm or I will cut out carbohydrates, whatever it is. When did these patterns become an eating disorder? Oh, that's such a great question, Becky, because I feel like we are living in the age of rules with our eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially with, um, you know, especially with COVID, I feel like I, I, I like to say many of us, or not myself, actually, many people, <laughs> you know, thought are, were, were doing a really great job over COVID, meaning they had the time to 
focused on on eating healthy, on increasing exercise. You know, everybody invested in an air fryer. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and and but the other the the flip side of that, many of us, by the way, did not do those things, especially if you have small kids like myself. Yeah, who just survived <laughs> barely. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the some of some of what came along with that is all of the the usual fad diets that we normally um, see. But it just became a really a hyper focus on health um, as a way to diet, and and it, it's a little worrying. So, like you said, a lot of the rules with uh, not eating carbs or um, you know eating a, a higher fat diet, fasting, so different yes. levels of fasting diets, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know while all of these things have shown to have health benefits, mm-hmm. um, what we're looking out for to answer your question, you know, when is it a problem? Is is when it when it becomes a problem. When you see that the person uh, gets extremely distressed if they are, are unable to stick with their rule that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if somebody says, I want to be on a low carb diet, and then they have a, a birthday party or something and they eat some carbohydrates, and then the next day they're extremely upset and they, they restrict their eating as a response to that, or they're weighing themselves um, every day, mm-hmm. or they are, you know, um, hyper-focused on their shape and their body, mm-hmm. if they are overusing the mirror, for example, you know, these are the things we are definitely looking out for. So it's very much, well, like all psychology conditions, is very much if the person is experiencing interference and distress, is it interfering in their lives? Like, are they canceling dinner parties because they don't want to break a rule? Are they unable to, um, you know, to, to have lunch at work because they're worried about being able to have access to the foods that they want. Um, so it's, uh, is it interfering with their life and is it causing distress? Are they upset when, when, when they're unable to, to um, stick with the rule? Mm-hmm. So those are really the things we are looking out for. And I'll have to say, it's not easy to see. So I can't tell you the amount of parents I see, for example, he, whose kid has an eating disorder and they say to me, you know, I just, I feel so silly. I cannot believe I didn't notice this was happening. You know, that's a common thing that we'll say, mm-hmm. or I didn't notice that the weight had decreased so much. And, and that's normal. Often it can start out looking like very healthy behavior. So I am eating much more healthy. I'm eating more fruits and veg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, or I've lost a bit of weight and I'm getting, I'm exercising. Like it, that's the problem. It's hard to, to know when, when it flips over. And this mm-hmm. is why the education is so important. Um, so that not just the folks, you know, loved ones can can observe and know and be, you know, be a little weary and get the person to help if they think they need to. But also so that each person can also recognize when they may be slipping into an unhealthy um, eating pattern. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right. What you what you talk about with it starting off being it's often disguised as being healthy. Oh, I, I'm not going to go to the party because I'm on a health kick and I want to yep. stick to it. And the other thing is, is that if you are suffering with an eating disorder, you get very good at hiding it. You don't want people to know. So you do, um, you do kind of cover it up. You do disguise it as something that it's not. Is that, is that something you see quite often? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like there, there is a point where it flips over where the person recognizes that they don't recognize it may be a problem, but they recognize that they're happy with what they're doing, but other people will not be. Yes. And so, um, you know, absolutely. You get very good at hiding it. So you see, mm-hmm. sometimes we can see some unusual behaviors around that, mm-hmm. meaning um, uh, pocketing, like eating, but then spitting out. So people don't know that you're not eating as much. 
and um, especially folks who may be in, involved in uh, in uh, vomiting. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of uh, you know sneaking off to the bathroom to have a vomit or taking pills, um, diet pills, or usually uh, water pills is something people would take as well to decrease weight by you know dehydration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can also see some unusual behaviors around stifling hunger as well. So. Um, so people, of course, if you are restricting, you're going to feel hungry, at least in the initial stages. So we may see people um, chewing things and spitting them out or chewing unusual things, things without nutritional value, mm-hmm. um, which can sort of satisfy that that hunger sensation. Mm-hmm. And then we can get into some much more uh, sneaky, if you want to call it that, behaviors around <laughs> weighing, you know, where somebody may put things in their pockets in order to weigh a bit more. Right. Um, and all of these sort of things. So definitely it's hard to see. And it, it and it's not, you know, just to be clear, the person is not trying to be devious yes. or trying to be sneaky. It is just, it's just usually it's, I think I'm doing a good job and I disagree with what others say. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm going to make it easy by not causing distress in my loved ones yes. so that they're not aware of it. So it's, it's not like a, a bad behavior. It's much more, a, I don't want to cause trouble. Um, yes. So I'm going to keep it quiet. Yes, no, that's that's a really interesting point. And how much do you think of this is a cultural impact? What do you think about social media and the impact that that's having on people looking at their body image and their ideas of what a healthy body is? Oh, that's a great question. Um, to, to answer this, I'm actually going to go back to a, a very popular psychology experiment um, that really highlights this. So mm-hmm. in this experiment, they, they had three groups of people. So one group um, were terrified of spiders. I mean, spi- uh, sorry, snakes. Mm-hmm. They actually had a, had a, a phobia of snakes. Right. Another group just didn't like snakes. And a third group um, liked snakes, right? Had, no, had a neutral feeling about them. It didn't bother them. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they had each group individually look at um, a snake in a, well, several, I think it was three snakes in a tank. And then they had to look at pictures of snakes and rate and try to figure out which snake it was according to size. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can any, imagine what the results of that were. So generally the folks in the group that hate that were, had a phobia of snakes, they generally picked the bigger snakes. Yes. Uh, they saw, they saw a bigger snake. <laughs> yes. Um, the folks in the the group that just didn't like them and the neutral group, they generally were very accurate in picking the right size snake. Mm. So this is an important point. When we are hyper-focused on something because we are afraid of it or we're anxious about it, it looks different to us. That's what I'm, I'm getting at. It looks different. Mm-hmm. It, it's not an hallucination, but it actually looks different. And it's a usually it's a foreground background effect. Like we're focused on it so we don't see it in its perspective. Right. Um, so the same thing can happen to us in looking at ourselves, meaning if we are hyper-focused on how we look, if we're looking in the mirror all the time, um, if we are, you know, always focused on our weight, if we're looking at feeling about how we fit in our seat, all of these sort of um, checking type behaviors, we're going to look, I mean, if we're worried about how, how, how big we are, for example, we're going to look and feel bigger than we actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes that can rise to the level um, of sort of body dysmorphia, like which is severe form of that, where I actually see myself differently than I actually am. And we can see that in the context of an eating disorder. 
Sometimes it's a general, I just, because I am hyper-focused on it, it looks different. Um, and, and so, you know, that's an important point to make with this is that uh, some of these sort of behaviors are being produced by a real experience that the person is having. So if you are hyper-focused on what you eat and on your shape and you're looking in the mirror often, you know, you're going to, it's going to look bigger than it actually is. Just like I, just like that experiment that I talked about. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. The, the tricks your brain can play on you. Absolutely. You got it. Our um, brains are amaz- amazing things, but they yeah. can't get us in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and what impact have you seen since the pandemic? Because there's been a lot of people online more than often. We yes. talked earlier about offline. I think we yes. talked about Zoom and the impact that that's how exactly what are you seeing so 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 following on to what I was just saying about being hyper focused and, and checking more mm-hmm. you can only imagine you know so um, so many of our teenagers especially have been sitting on zoom you know calls and zoom school every day all day throughout the pandemic um, much more on social media um, and looking at pictures of themselves and others and what what we're going to see is the same sort of impact that I was describing. And which is, you know, leading, I think, to a much higher rate of eating disorders in general. So we've seen a higher rate in North America. If you look at the North American statistics in, in, um, in Europe and definitely in Bermuda, we see a much higher rate of eating disorders. And a lot of this is being driven by, um, you know, being on Zoom meetings, uh, looking at uh, their face all day and looking at others and spending much more time. Um, in an unhealthy social environment rather than a healthy social environment where people are hyper-focused on social media. Mm-hmm. So this is, it's really tricky. You know, even things like Instagram, like it, it's fun, so funny, I'll age myself. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started doing this work, you know, we would ban magazines, like, oh, you're not allowed. <laughs> you know, they would have to, and now like, who has a magazine, right? <laughs> um, so now it is, you know, one of the things we do early on in treatment is we have to turn off uh, Instagram, turn off Facebook, turn off Snapchat. Like we have to just turn it all off. I bet um, that doesn't go down too well with a lot of people. No, it <laughs> does not. It is a major battle. Yes. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing that if they can go two days without it, usually they are grateful. Like they can mm-hmm. feel the difference. They can feel yes. the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I actually came off Instagram and I, because again, I was looking at images that just weren't serving me in any kind of helpful way. And I thought I'll, I'll take a week off and I ended up taking over a year off and it was the best. Yeah. It was just the best thing for me. It just, you, you stop obsessing about things that were, were important to you before. Oh, absolutely. That's right. You know, this is a huge part of the treatment for eating disorders. I, we call it like checking, or this would be considered checking behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and comparison making, essentially. And um, it is probably one of the most powerful treatment components. And it's almost the easiest, like we don't have to get into a whole lot of psychology. It yeah. is basically, let's remove any mirrors that are unhelpful. Let's mm-hmm. um, talk about how you when you walk down the street, and you look at others, how you think about their bodies, like let's focus on their glasses, rather than how they look mm-hmm. and their shape. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and also, like I said, let's take a break from social media. Um, Usually when we do this treatment component, that isn't a lot of psychological work. It really makes a big difference. Like you're describing, people can feel a heck of a lot better Mm -hmm. just being, having less attention on shape, weight, and appearance. Mm -hmm. Do you think now that the, we're kind of coming to the, 
well, the pandemic is trailing off, shall we say. Do you think yes. things are getting better or are we still seeing that kind of lapse? With, with Yeah, things are basically? definitely, things are not getting better. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, in mental health, we often talk about the third wave, which is, you know, as things are improving in the world in terms of the pandemic and we're able to, maybe the numbers are still there, but we're not seeing deaths like we used to, you know, we're able to go and do things. We're not as restricted. Um, I feel like a lot of people have left panic mode and now mental health is able to, you know, we're, we're out of the crisis. And so all of that stress and, and distress is it's right in the forefront. And we're definitely seeing an increase in most mental health problems. So in, in depression in anxiety and generally how people manage stress. Um, and we're definitely, you know, seeing, continuing to see that increase in terms of eating disorder. Our relationship with Computers has changed through the pandemic, as evidenced by you and I on, um, you know, yeah. on not face to face as we do this. Yes. Um, you know, now, even though we can meet face to face with for meetings and other things, people are choosing uh, mm -hmm. to meet via a social platform, a media platform. Mm -hmm. You know, we our relationship with the computers have changed. And I don't think I don't think we're going back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you know, right. also the working from home versus working at work. Many, you know, in some industries, you have to meet face to face. But again, I think this is a big change when some people are not going back to work. They're going to remain for the most part at home. Um, so and this, of course, is going to continue, continue to contribute to these kind of problems. You know, many people were in great distress once the pandemic settled down and for the first time and we started to go back to work, um, you know, the you know, having to go back and be in have people see their bodies or see their shape again. Um, having to put clothes on that may not fit as well as they did. I think we all had that problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of these things. Um, so that's, you know, that's these off. But but I, I think the changes with the pandemic are going to continue. And we're going to continue to see these sort of problems. Um, definitely in teenagers, the changes that have happened over social media usage and all of that have also will continue. And so we're going to still see those triggers as well as we move forward. Mm -hmm. And I suppose for, for kids and teenagers in particular, not going to school for such a long time, not seeing their peers must have had a bit of an impact on their, on their physical and their mental health. Oh my, not oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old mm -hmm. um, and my five-year-old just didn't know, you know, this all started when he was two, was it? Mm -hmm. Two and a half. He, did, he didn't know what it was to go out without his mask on. Like he just wow. didn't understand it. He yeah. doesn't remember, you know. Um, wow. So this is all when we go out now without his mask, he's shocked. Like he's like, where's my mask? He feels <laughs> naked. <laughs> um, wow. You know, he felt he started school in his mask. Like that was wow. and, and in bubbles and not being able to have circle time and not being able to play with other kids. So now when he can go to the playground with his class, he is he is ecstatic. Yes, I bet. <laughs> Honestly. So yes, absolutely. Kids, you know, it, it's, it's going to be interesting. There's a, there's a lot of ongoing research on the long-term impact of the pandemic on kids, especially. And it's one of the reasons why many um, child psychologists and child psychiatrists were really advocating for the easing of rules in schools, especially because mm -hmm. in some ways the mental health impact may have been greater than the, the risk to physical health um, right. with not being able to socialize and be interactive. Yeah. Um, and certainly, I know, I don't know about other parents, but I was probably the most stressed I have ever been. Um, <laughs> I am not a teacher. 
Yeah. Uh, and teachers deserve a million dollars a year in yeah. pay. Um, honestly. Uh, and I, I can't imagine, you know, the, the stress and I, you know, I, I had a good environment. I had my husband who was here. I had a job where I could be flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a house that had space and a yard. I can't imagine other people in less fortunate circumstances, how yeah. they coped yeah. and, you know, that stress, how that played a role in also how they discipline their kids or how they talk to their kids or their ability to teach their kids. I know mm-hmm. mine was impacted, you know, and I, like I said, was in a good environment. Um, so, so, you know, we don't know that impact on kids as well. Parents stress and distress on kids. Lots of parents are continue to be very distressed, whether it's economically or socially um, or have, or struggling with their own mental health problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that we're going to see kids getting older now and seeing diff- more difficult, more different problems. So definitely in the younger group, I would say, who I see who have an eating disorder. So in the like 11 to 13 year olds, um, there's definitely an impact on the home environment as well um, that has contributed to what is happening. Mm-hmm. And not saying that parents are doing a bad job. Parents, like myself included, we mess up sometimes. We do the best we can for the most part. Um, but it's it's been a difficult time for everybody. Of course. And for parents in the home environment, other than maybe trying to limit the amount of time their kids are spending on social media, how can we help cultivate a po- positive body image for our children? Yes, absolutely. Um, so there has to be a recognition. There's such a balance. You know, I don't have teenagers and I'm not looking forward to it, I would yeah. say. <laughs> but there, there has to be a balance between independence and, and, um, and some support and organization around their behavior, you know, and I can't imagine it's a difficult balance to have as a parent. Um, so what I mean by that is we have to recognize that kids will be on social media and we can't control it. So we can, you know, I see some group of parents who try to try to control their kids as much as possible. And I understand that I get it, mm-hmm. but it's not going to work. What will happen is bad behavior will just happen in private. Sure. And we can't really, we can't, you know, there's nothing we can do about it if we don't know it is occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'd like to encourage parents to do is to find some flexibility and be able to sort of balance that independence with the control. So this means a lot of discussions around what is healthy and unhealthy on social media, mm-hmm. um, encouraging their kids to engage in other healthy behaviors. You know, if there's no time, if they can't be on social media all day, if they're busy doing other things. So if they are, you know, off involved in some sort of sport um, or if they're off, you know, doing a social thing in person with their friends or as a family, if they, if you are doing something together, um, if they have a hobby, which they love, which they're going to engage in, you know, whether it is cycling or, you know, um, yeah. I see a lot of kids doing all sorts of things now, triathlons and all, you know, there's no time. Mm-hmm. So this is a much more healthier way to go about it rather than I'm banning social media sure. um, because kids will just do that in private. It's mm-hmm. much more better to have conversations around what's healthy and what's unhealthy, um, to encourage other healthy uh, social behaviors and active activity. And then also in the same light, um, really having discussions around self-worth. Um, mm-hmm. So this is one of the things we do in treatment as well. So one of the, the commonalities we see amongst people with eating disorders is that a lot of their sort of self-worth and self dependence and how they how they feel about themselves is wrapped up in appearance Mm -hmm. and so really having discussions around that and around 
finding other things that can bring self-worth, really showcasing that as a parent as well. So, you know, I was saying myself, you can't see me because we're on a podcast, but I'm not a slim person. Um, you know, and I tell my my patients and my kids that I work with that I can, you know, it's important that parents, and I discuss this with them, that you cannot like certain parts of yourself. Like you can say, oh, I wish I was a little slimmer and still like 90% of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that they need to be taught. So parents can also model that as well. Um, and also encourage that. Like, what is it about you that you like? What's great about you? Mm-hmm. What makes you a good person? Um, and if you can't find anything, well, let's figure it out. Let's go mm-hmm. try some new things. Let's add some value to your life um, beyond, you know, your shape and your appearance. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point, especially in the day and age we're living in now, where there are so many celebrities, particularly women, but many yes. who are praised for their appearance rather than for their, you know, intimate accomplishments or their being a good person, their talent yes. or, or anything like that. So I think that's a yes. important point. Um, I also wanted to get onto a few myths. Maybe you can bust a few myths for us around eating disorders, because given the seriousness of the illness, it's something I don't think we kind of all know enough about. So I'll give you a few myths, maybe, and you can you can tell us if they are true. Sure. So the first one, eating disorders are down to vanity or seeking attention. Yep, that is most definitely a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, eating disorders are a psychological condition um, and the person normally is in great distress. It is not something they choose or they want. Um, and it's definitely not vanity. So it is usually starts out as a, a control, uh, meaning somebody feels they really want to improve their their shape. Like it starts out in a positive way, like we talked about, and then it sort of morphs and escalates into something uh, more substantial. Mm-hmm. Definitely not vanity. Um, it is not, tr- you know, can't treat it by just forcing the person to eat. And we see this over and over again. We can force feed somebody in hospital. You know, we can give them a feeding tube and make their weight increase. Mm-hmm. Um, and they leave the hospital and they instantly, they still have an eating disorder. It's not yeah. going away. Um, so, so I hope that answers that question. It does. And I think it takes us nicely onto the next one, which is that eating disorders are about food. Oh yes. That's definitely a myth. Uh, Food is the least, the least important part of the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, while the person needs, usually for a low weight eating disorder, we need to eat in order to get better. We really also need to address all the psychology underneath, meaning like I talked about the person's self-worth, um, uh, all these behaviors that are going on that might be increasing the focus on shape and weight and appearance, like the checking behaviors, rules around food. A lot of times it's just educating the person makes a big difference. Um, so definitely it's not just about food. Mm-hmm. So by on that note, does that mean that anyone can have an eating disorder at any weight? You don't have to be underweight. Could you be overweight or you know, above an average weight or even a, what is deemed a healthy weight and having it. Definitely. Definitely. It is, um, especially, you know, like I mentioned, there are those different categories of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, you can have an eating disorder at any weight you can have, um, technically you can have anorexia even at a healthy weight or overweight. Um, we may not call it anorexia, but usually we see that as a progression towards like you're in the process of losing weight. Um, So most definitely weight has very little to do with it. It's Mm -hmm. much more about 
your, like you mentioned before, the person's relationship with food, their behavior around food, and then even more importantly, their psychology around their self-worth and how they think about themselves as a person. Mm -hmm. And just to follow on from what you said, thinking of my own recovery, I think at my lowest weight, I was 85 pounds. But going through the process of restoring my weight was only really part one of my recovery. The main part of the recovery was the thoughts and the behaviors and the body image and the obsession with weight. The restoring weight wasn't, it was quite a small part of actually the recovery, which from the outside, you wouldn't necessarily think. No, absolutely. You're right. And and in fact, it gets confusing, even more confusing, because I'm sure that was the very first part of your recovery too. Yes. Um, Meaning we yeah, when we are treating anorexia, we hyper focus on getting their weight up in the first, you know, as quickly as we can in the very beginning. And this is because when you're at a very low weight, your brain does not work as well as it should. Mm-hmm. It goes into a, star- a starvation mode. Your thoughts become extremely stuck and sticky, mm-hmm. especially the negative thoughts. Like it's, it, you know, it doesn't make sense engaging in psychotherapy when your brain is incapable of it. Sure. Um, so, so often in the very beginning of treatment, we just focus on weight re- restoration or weight regain. Mm-hmm. And, be, and there is a like a light switch. Uh, I, I've never been through this, but I've seen it hundreds of times with patients. You know, once weight gets above a certain point where the brain sort of just releases and, and gets healthier and feels mm-hmm. better and you can think better and you're not yes. as hyper-focused on things. And yes. then that's when I say the real work begins, you mm-hmm. know, uh, when we actually, like you said, engage in the more important parts of treatment. And that takes much longer. Yes. And that first initial weight change portion. Yeah, absolutely. And final myth we've got is that eating disorders only happen to girls or women. Yep, that is most definitely a myth as well. So mm-hmm. definitely it's more common in uh, in females. So um, so for as an in, uh, for instance, or in the United States, um, you know, it's estimated about nine percent um, of the population may have an eating disorder and about 6% of those would be a low weight eating disorder like anorexia mm-hmm. for man. Um, so it's about, and then if you break it down to females and males, it's about 8%. It's mostly females. So 9% of females, 1.6% of males. Wow. Um, so it's less common in males, most definitely, but it is not absent in males. And I've certainly had um, a handful of, of male patients, um, they tend to be uh, athletes um, or have, um, you know, a reason why they are more focused on shape, weight, and appearance, mm-hmm. whether it is their hobbies or, like I said, their job. Um, I, I remember seeing somebody who was an a Olympic athlete, you know, and it, you can understand why the hyper-focus on shape and fitness uh, can, can produce these sorts of results. Um, so less common in man, and it, when it does occur in man, it's more definitely in the teenage years that we tend to see it, rather than in women where we can really see an eating disorder at any age group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had senior citizens who come in for treatment with an eating disorder. Less mm-hmm. common, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it can happen at any age group. Do you think that the stigma that men rarely suffer from eating disorders means that they are often overlooked or or kind of misdiagnosed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, not only are they overlooked, misdiagnosed, but they also don't have a whole lot of treatment options. Right. So, you know, if they require hospitalization or inpatient treatment, 
on an eating disorder unit, you know, they're, how would you feel, you know, they're in a unit surrounded by girls or women yes. yeah. um, and, and catered towards women and girls as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, you know, it's really tough and they tend to then be seen in an outpatient um, setting, which sometimes isn't optimal for certain cases. Sure. Um, so definitely it's more problematic. And even, you know, as a parent myself of two boys, it's easy to overlook emotional distress in boys, um, you know, or to, or to say, you know, get on with it, get up, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. But it's important. It's important to recognize it and work hard at it. And it's certainly something I work on as a parent, even though I'm a psychologist. Sure. (laughs) We get into this routine with boys, right? Um, If it, so I think we see the same pattern as well when it comes to eating disorders. Okay. Well, thank you very much for busting Uh those for us. We've got a couple of questions from the um, Royal Gazette community. I don't know if a lot of the listeners follow us on Instagram, but they may have seen that the Royal Gazette and RG Mags asked the community if they had any questions for you coming in to to speak to us today. So you've had a couple that, if you don't mind, I'll put to you. Sure. And um, one person who wanted to know more about bulimia. So We've touched briefly on what bulimia is, but what else can you tell us? What is the treatment for it? Does it impact certain personality types more than others? Oh, sure. So bulimia is one of the is a one of the more common eating disorders, um, and like we talked about, it's usually characterized by episodes of binge eating and then compensatory behavior, whether it's exercise, over exercise or um, vomiting, or other behaviors to compensate for for binge episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so bulimia can be extremely distressing. Uh, one of the reasons is you can't see it, you know, for like a low weight eating disorder, everybody knows the person is unwell, it is obvious that they need help and assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, with bulimia, it can often go untreated for long stretches, because the person maintains a normal weight, or the weight may fluctuate, like maybe higher in some cases when they're doing more binging behaviors, and then may get lower if they're able to restrict more. Um, and so, you know, that puts a lot of pressure psychologically on the individual, and also on the body, it can be, you know, so it comes along with some medical problems as well. So people who have years of bulimia, for example, um, especially if it's associated with vomiting, may have teeth issues and enamel issues, you know, major problems in that regard from the years of vomiting. Um, The electrolyte changes from vomiting and from the weight fluctuations can really impact things. Um, Another aside is that that these folks won't respond to medications as well as others, including anorexia. Um, So the the sudden changes in weight and the lower weights um, mean that you don't respond as well to antidepressants, for example, or or anti-anxiety medication which it can be really tough because people with eating disorders sometimes get very depressed as well. And then the medications don't work as well. So it comes along with, with those sort of issues. What treatment looks like is very similar to anorexia nervosa, interestingly, but without the weight regain portion. So, so the, the treatment is really focused on um, relearning hunger cues, um, you know, eating on schedule and to plan and figuring out how to do that and, and feel comfortable with that. And then the same things we would do with the low weight eating disorder, meaning um, recognize any rules around eating and try to, to bust those or challenge those, mm-hmm. um, really focus on self-worth and how the person feels about themselves, decrease checking behaviors, um, increase body appreciation, um, decrease body avoidance. 
And then we spend a lot of time also working on the sensation of feeling fat, which people will say is one of the most common things they feel in bulimia. Um, you know, and recognizing that that's not a feeling, like that's not a real, it's a feeling, it's not a real um, interpretation, if you mm-hmm. want to call it that. So there's, you know, and I, I could keep going, I could talk about <laughs> this for an hour, what we do in treatment, but those are some of the things that we do. And it, you right. know, like I said, one of the reasons why I really enjoy doing this work is that I get to see people get a heck of a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, you know, in this sort of treatment, while people are usually in a great deal of distress, it has one of the highest rates of treatment success mm-hmm. in all our um, mental health groups. So people, you know, the treatments are very successful. They're good at getting you better if you're willing and open and wanting to engage. Um, and people get very better. And it's just so rewarding. You know, I still keep in touch with some of um, my clients that I saw in Oxford who are doing amazing and doing amazing things. Um, yeah. You know, one was on the Oxford rowing team. If you know anything about Oxford and Cambridge, it's a huge, mm-hmm. you know, rowing thing. Uh, you know, just, it's so great to see people achieve and become their best selves, you know, and this is no longer in the way. Yeah. So speaking to that, I think you just mentioned what are some of, sort of risk factors. Perfectionism mm-hmm. is a huge risk factor. So perfectionism and control is usually um, the biggest risk factors. Perfectionism meaning um, I like things to be the way I like them. Um, I have to, you know, things have to be right. And that doesn't mean the person lives in an impeccably clean house or is well organized because usually it's black and white. Either I organize the heck out of something or I'm completely unorganized. Um, and so we tend to see a lot of eating disorders in people who are perfectionists, who are very intelligent, who are doing very well at school. Um, also in people who like to be in control. I would be in that category. Uh, people who like to, you know, who like to be in charge of their own lives, who can't pass over control to others. Um, and so, you know, that's another, would be another risk factor. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Well, thank you very much for that. And I, I suppose if someone did want to know more, what would be their first point of contact? Would it be to visit your GP? Yeah. So usually with most mental health problems, we want to always visit GP first. Mm-hmm. Um, or at some point or in conjunction, just because, you know, when it comes to mental health, there are medical things that can, that can mimic mental health. Um, and so we just want to make sure that GP is checking and making sure, you know, that your, um, so for example, that your thyroid is functioning. Okay. Sure. If it's under functioning, it can cause depression, for example. Um, you know, just want to sort of rule out any medical things or any side effects from medications you might be taking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then GPs are also an excellent referral source. So they can sort of get you to the right place. Sure. Um, so in terms of eating disorders here in Bermuda, GP would be a good first choice or pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Most pediatricians are very well versed in knowing what, what comes next um, with eating disorders. They will all have several cases on their sort of caseload. Um, here in Bermuda, like I said, like we've talked about, I specialize in treating eating disorders. Um, there are other psychologists who are very proficient in managing eating disorder problems as well, but may not, you know, some may not be as comfortable as others. So it's important to have that discussion up front um, mm-hmm. if you are choosing a psychologist to work with. Sure. And final question from the RG community is what advice can you give someone who has a 23 year old son who struggles with body dysmorphia and is not interested in therapy? Oh, yep. Uh, um, That's a great question because many people aren't interested in traditional therapy or don't want to engage in um, 
I would hate to think they can't get any sort of help. So that's a great question. Mm-hmm. So definitely that person needs help and assistance. Um, eating disorders are, they, they morph and they worsen. They never stay the same and they certainly never improve on their own without some sort of assistance. Um, well, so actually very rarely improve. So, you know, it'll keep getting worse unless something is done about it or some help is gotten. Mm-hmm. So if the person doesn't want to engage in traditional therapy, I would say to encourage other things. So there are definitely resources online. Um, so at the University of Oxford, they are, they've just finished a treatment trial for an online or a digital, I would say, treatment where the person sort of drives the treatment themselves. Mm. Um, and that might be something that is a little bit more comfortable for folks who don't want to follow a traditional therapeutic pathway. Mm-hmm. There are also fabulous um, books that are available. Um, so there's one really good book that I tend to use quite a lot called Overcoming Binge Eating. And it's written by um, Christopher Fairburn, who is who I trained with at Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book is really, it, 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 it really does the same treatment I would do, for, for example. Um, but the person can, can read the book and sort of follow along themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I would definitely encourage, don't take your eyes off the person, you know, but maybe encourage them to do other things that may not be traditional therapy. Mm-hmm. So order a book for them to follow. Um, and then the same things that I talked about earlier. So anything is going to get better if the person is more busy and occupied and, and happier in general. Mm-hmm. So we can work on things like getting them out of the house, increasing um, activity. I don't mean super exercise. I mean activity. So we want to release some endorphins. So go for a stroll, get fresh air, engage in a sport, um, you know, help the person to to get happier in general, which will maybe improve other things as well. Mm-hmm. I, I completely, I think what you said about um resources and reading is really important and that helped me a huge amount in the beginning of my recovery before I think I was ready to seek professional help it's something I knew I was going through so I just started to educate myself and reading um, other people's stories recovery stories Um, I remember one book I read it was called The Year I Didn't Eat by Samuel Pollan and it was a um, he'd written it about his own experience um, with anorexia and I think if if you can find a resource maybe about body dysmorphia that is relatable, then I think that's a great option in my Oh, yes, absolutely. And just another thing about body dysmorphia is uh, there are all sorts of new treatments. So when I trained in Boston, we were doing virtual reality treatments. There are new treatments um, that are really helpful. So if that person does eventually is willing, you know, there are it's some really cool and interesting ways of treating body dysmorphia mm-hmm. that isn't just traditional, let's sit down and chat therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's good to know. Just a question about body dysmorphia. Is it sure? Is it a cause of an eating disorder or would you say it's a symptom of an eating disorder or both? Sure. So, so I would say it, they have a, a common uh, trigger point. So they have a, a common, um, you know, they, have a, they may have arisen from the same problem. So they're two separate psychological conditions and would, would hold two separate diagnoses, um, but they often can co-occur. Um, and like I said, they would often happen at, at the same time because they are being triggered by the same sort of underlying psychology. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say one causes the other per se, but they would often co-occur at the same time right. because of a third, a third variable. And usually that's psychology around 
um, self-perception and how one feels about shape and weight and appearance. Got you. And, and just finally, just speaking about recovery, what resources do we have on the island for recovery or do a lot of patients have to go overseas to seek full treatment? Um, sure. So we don't have a specialist sort of inpatient or day hospital treatment here in Bermuda for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So definitely if somebody requires a higher level of care, meaning an inpatient treatment for eating disorders particularly, or a day treatment where somebody spends a day in the hospital and then sleeps at home, you know, they would have to travel overseas for care. And usually um, for Bermudians, because of our insurance, it tends to be to the United States. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, many great treatment facilities, several in Boston, for example, um, that can do that. Mm-hmm. For, for folks who require outpatient treatment, um, that we can do that very well here in Bermuda. Like I said, I specialize, so I would often be the psychologist who is contacted, um, and I probably have the most eating disorder cases on my caseload. Mm-hmm. Other psychologists may work with eating disorders depending on um, what it looks like, like how severe it is. Um, and then we would work in conjunction with that, that person's pediatrician if it's a teenager um, or with their GP if it's an adult. We'd also involve psychiatry if necessary. Often people can also experience depression at the same time, and so we do need to treat that as well. Um, so we can sort of work as a team. Um, sometimes we do involve a nutritionist. Sometimes we don't. So it really depends on the person. Um, but all those services are definitely here available in Bermuda in terms of outpatient care. But mm-hmm. if we need a higher level of care, like inpatient or a day hospital um, or a PHP, we would we would need to like a partial hospitalization program. They would need to travel overseas. Okay. Okay. It's good to know that we have a lot of resources on the island for for those people who do need help. Mm-hmm. Well, I could probably talk to you all day about this, but I know I've probably got to let you go now. So thank you so, so much for coming in and and speaking to us. And we'll put your details in the show notes. So if anyone is concerned, then maybe they can they can reach out to you. Is it at Chrysalis where you where you're? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Becky, thank you for drawing attention to, I think, an often overlooked issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's often seen as just, oh, it's just teenage girls. But I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm so glad that we can draw attention to it and make sure that everybody's aware that this can be happening to anybody, uh, yes. whether it's age or sex. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Bayston and a huge thank you to our sponsor. This episode has been sponsored by Lindos. Why go anyplace else? Please head over to our social media pages and let us know what you thought of today's episode. We are at the Royal Gazette and at RG Mags on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And make sure you look out for next month's episode where we'll be discussing the importance of sleep and why it is one of the four pillars of health. We'll see you then.